Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of In No Hurry. I am your host, Cole Douglas Claiborne. So happy to be back with you guys for another episode. As you know, we have an election coming up in just about a week, and this show rarely talks about politics, and that's sort of by design, simply because it can be so divisive and polarizing, and that's not really what I'm here to do. But since faith has become such an important topic in this election, I do want to take some time to address that. My guest this week is Adam Wren. Adam is a political journalist based out of Indianapolis. He writes for Politico and Indianapolis Monthly, and he has covered all aspects of this election. And so I wanted to bring him on to talk about what it's been like to cover the faith aspect of this particular election and just get his thoughts on how the issues of faith and where evangelicals stand all of that sort of stuff, how it plays into this election, and just kind of talk about some of the topics that I know evangelicals and Christians and people of faith are paying attention to right now. This conversation is not intended to sway your vote one way or the other. It's not what I'm here to do, but I did want to talk to somebody who is covering this on the front lines and can speak to what are voters really thinking? What are these candidates doing to appeal to those in the Christian faith and to people of faith. Adam is an incredibly bright person and a great reporter and a Christian himself. And so I think you guys will enjoy hearing his perspective on covering this election and specifically the matters of faith as they relate to this election. So here is my friend, political journalist, Adam Wren. Well, Adam, I'm glad that we could finally get you on the show. We've worked really hard to get you on here. So I hope everybody that's listening appreciates this is the middle of election season and you're a busy guy. Thank you for taking some time to join the show. Yeah, happy to happy to be here. Happy to join the show and, and chat. So I guess first thing, I guess just what has this election been like? It's it's a unique election because, you know, with COVID and uh, there's a, a lot more early voting going on. It's just a different election, I feel like, than even 2016. And how would you put this particular election in context to uh, some of our more recent ones, just in terms of what's different about it from covering it and just observing it as a, as a citizen too? Well, I feel like I could say this um, about really any successive uh, election in my lifetime, but it seems like with each passing election, uh, by virtue of being a journalist, I pay more and more attention to uh, to it than I have the, the previous election. So um, I, I uh, in the 2016 cycle, um, I uh, covered uh, President Trump for Politico magazine, um, you know, starting in you know July of 2015, August of 2015, um, and you know this cycle I was more focused on an Indiana candidate, Pete Buttigieg, uh, the former mayor of South Bend. Um, but I feel like I've, you know, covered this election, you know, more closely than I ever have an election before. So, and for, you know, quite a long time, kind of gearing up in December of 2018, uh, you know, uh, you know, December, November of 2020, uh, 2018. So I feel like I'm really uh, engaged in, you know, what's happening um, as a reporter. Um, but, you know, it's been interesting. There haven't been, particularly in Indiana, haven't been a lot of rallies um, like there were in 2016, I think in 2016, you know, I covered, you know, Ted Cruz, I covered um, Donald Trump, uh, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, um, you know, all those people crisscrossed Indiana in May of 2016 out of the primary and then uh, a few of them uh, during the general election. Uh, but, you know, this, I have, there have not been sort of the kind of rallies that we saw in 2016, obviously because of the coronavirus. So it has been a little different. Um, trying to, you know, I, I went to a fundraiser for the Libertarian gubernatorial candidate here in Indiana a couple of weeks ago um, in person at a gun range just outside of Indianapolis, and I may be going to Michigan uh, in the next week or so to, to cover some events there. So certainly a different election cycle, um, you know, in terms of just not physically covering campaign events. Is that going to have any significant impact on vote, I guess, maybe not for voter turnout, because you tweeted today, I guess, early voting lines were incredibly long where you where you drove by. And I guess that was near Carmel or something like that. But you've seen early voting numbers pretty high. And I, I was curious if, you know, the rallies not happening would have an impact on voting. But it seems like early voting has been higher than it has been in years past. 
Yeah, it doesn't seem to be. I mean, I, th I think one of the positive outcomes of not having physical events um, and not having sort of the same type of campaign coverage, uh, we're not seeing sort of the, you know, on the ground reporting that we have seen in previous election cycles. But I think in what in its place, uh, what, what has replaced that is that we've seen a more of a focus from journalists covering suffrage, covering covering voting, um, how voting works, how people are enfranchised or disenfranchised. And I think, you know, the average voter understands much more um, prominently how how much, you know, the election means to their everyday lives in a way. Uh, that it hasn't before. And so I think that we're, you know, we're certainly seeing, you know, record number of voters go to the polls. How much of just what's happened in 2020 do you think is a, is a byproduct of that? Because we've seen racial justice issues that have, you know, kind of taken a, a front seat for most of this year, along with the coronavirus, which has impacted people's businesses and stuff like that. Just how much have the events of 2020 affected people's willingness and interest in voting this year? You know, I think in the past, voting has sort of been like, um, you know, tuning, tuning in to watch maybe your favorite college football team. Yeah. Um, you know, it was something that you did um, to sort of show, you know, show your allegiance, show, show you know, your brand. Uh, but I think in 2020, I think after four years uh, of the kind of politics that we've seen on both sides of the aisle, I think people realize more than ever before how much, you um, what happens in Washington, D.C. impacts people where they live um, just on an everyday basis, uh, whether it's, you know, issues like immigration, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, th the credibility of government in responding to the, the novel coronavirus, both in Washington, D.C. and in state capitals or even in, um, you know, local county seats. I think people understand how, how important government is, um, you know, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, uh, to their everyday lives. And so I think that's really sort of been the thing that's driven, you know, 2020 from a voter's perspective. And we had quite a few questions from people that, that tweeted in uh, that want to hear from you. And we'll get to those here in a little bit. Um, a, lot of, a lot of questions about uh, just the aspect of faith as it, re as it relates to this election. That's ultimately kind of what I wanted to talk to you a lot about, too. As you see, obviously, um, you know, I, I associate myself with a lot of uh, people in the evangelical circle. And there's kind, of a, there's kind of a divide between the people that have really married their beliefs to the Republican Party and to Donald Trump's reelection, uh, you know, basically hitching their wagon to religious freedom and, and all that kind of stuff, which un is understandable. Um, but John Piper, um, I actually just had John Piper's son Barnabas on last week, and uh, John Piper, you know, famous pastor, just wrote an article yesterday that, or a couple of days ago, that came out that basically um, spoke about Donald Trump's character and how, according to biblical scripture his character is equally as deadly as what people on the Christian side are, are arguing, you know, it for uh, against abortion, They're basically saying like, we're not talking enough about his character and that kind of stuff. So there's kind of a, an interesting divide between the, the strong uh, evangelical sect that is, you know, so strongly in Trump's corner. And then you have some that are, that are still on Biden's side with all of this. And just from the, from the, faith aspect of it, what have you noticed in terms of kind of the clash where, you know, both both candidates are vying for religious people's vote right now. And we've seen a lot of that with advertisements. So we've seen, uh, you know, Biden talking a lot about his Catholic faith. That's a, a big contingent of people that both of them are going after. And I guess just from your perspective, um, how have you assessed that aspect of this election so far? Well, I think that that's a good question. I think that, you know, both campaigns are really courting evangelicals in a way that we haven't seen in the past in terms of parity. Um, you know, typically, you know, maybe the, the, the Republicans will be a little bit more savvy in going after evangelical voters um, in a way that Democrats might not have been. Um, certainly, at least during the 2016 election, um, you know, Hillary Clinton struggled to to really, you know, even though she is a, a devout Christian, um, uh, you know, uh, as a Methodist, I've, I've attended her church um, in, in um, Chicago, just to get a sense of, of what it was like back in 2016. But I, I think she really struggled to engage voters of faith. 
um, in a way that Biden has not struggled to do so. I, I think the other um, new thing that we've seen in 2020 is, you know, a number of interest groups on the Democratic side try to try to reach out um, to uh, to voters of faith, particularly evangelicals. You've got Evangelicals for Biden, um, you know, a group that is um, sort of well resourced, and they're they're, you know, really kind of em employing um, Christians uh, who people may know, you know, former members of like DC Talk or Jars of Clay, to try to reach out to to evangelical voters in a way we just haven't seen a Democrat do in a while. Um, you know, I think back to two thousand and eight. Uh, you know, Barack Obama you know, really uh, courted uh, popular evangelicals like Donald Miller, the, the writer um, who offered a prayer uh, ahead of the DNC event, uh, people like Cameron Strang, the editor and publisher of uh, Relevant Magazine. Um, and, and so we, it was sort of a gap um, in 2016 when it came to that kind of voter outreach on the Democratic side. So we're seeing much more parity, I think, in 2020. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I didn't realize that Obama had courted those people uh, in, in years past too. And it's kind of like a, you, you do see that a lot where you, you'll, you'll see some influential Christians that, that are kind of uh, aligning themselves to either side of it. And, and it just feels like more so, and maybe, maybe just because I'm paying more attention, maybe it's not necessarily more of a, a bigger deal this year than in years past, but it just seems like there's more of a focus on it. And I think what I have seen from my perspective is more of a plea from the far, far right evangelicals that are saying that this election is the most important election as it results, as it, as it relates to religious liberty. And I've talked to a couple of pastors and Christian writers on this show about that. And, you know, there's a, there's a danger in hitching your wagon of Christianity to the Republican faith. And, you know, I think, uh, I, I forget, I forget his quote, but I think it was Billy Graham that said something about like, you know, the worst thing that the, that, evangelicals could do is pitch their way it's you know, basically attach themselves to uh the the religious right and so you see that happening though with every election where it's almost like and it's happened on both sides where there's extreme on both sides of it but just whenever maybe whenever you've talked to people uh for for some of your stories or just in talking with voters i mean what what have you gathered is sort of the pulse of where uh, evangelicals are, are leaning right now? And what is it that, you know, is, is causing them to kind of go toward Trump or toward Biden? Well, I think the broad sweep of evangelicals um, will, will be claimed by Donald Trump again this time in 2020. Um, and I, I do think that Biden will, um, former Vice President Joe Biden will eat into some of his margins, um, you know, maybe to the tune of 10% or say, uh, uh, in terms of winning evangelicals. Um, but you know, when I, when I talk to voters, um, you know, their, their faith isn't really, I think the, the issue, um, really it's, it's sort of their worldview, which is obviously, obviously shaped by their faith. But I think there are a lot of Christians out there, particularly older Christians who feel under the constant threat of sort of a, a, a society, a world where they feel like sort of the outgroup uh, or the minority in terms of their beliefs and, and how they approach life. So I think there's a real fear that, um, you know, Democrats broadly are going to change the world as they know it and, and as they understand it. Um, you know, they, they are uh, feared about sort of this encroaching uh, liberalism and encro encroaching secularism on their life. Um, that will really sort of be, you know, something that um, changes their the fabric of their existence as they know it. Yeah. Um, I think of um, Amy Coney um, Barrett and her nomination to the Supreme Court. I think that um, has really energized evangelicals. Um, you know, this is someone who um, has uh, a lot in common with with evangelicals, even though she's a conservative. Catholic, um, you know, her, her membership in the group uh, People of Praise uh, will be sort of kind of familiar and conversant, um, a conversant experience with a lot of evangelicals in terms of, you know, this is a group that meets on Sunday afternoons after, after their regular church services or after mass uh, in South Bend and, and in other places across the country. And they, um, you know, they sing songs, they worship, they practice laying on of hands, uh, speaking in tongues. Um, and, you know, for a lot of, you know, Southern evangelicals, Southern Baptists, um, you know, people who are more, um, 
charismatic in their faith, um, that will be that will be a very very familiar experience to them. And so her nomination, I think, put front and center the idea of of sort of the cultural world cultural wars. Uh, in a way that hadn't been in the election up until now. So I think that will motivate a lot of evangelicals to go to the polls and vote for President Trump. Yeah, and this is a kind of a abstract question, but, and, you know, as an evangelical, I think it's, I guess, just just, just because I'm paying more attention to it this year, it seems like, um, fair or not, my perception of of certain things that, and this is true of, of any politician, I feel like, but especially like I've watched, what Donald Trump has done and certain things this year. And it feels like there is a strategy behind a lot of uh, his decisions and other people's decisions as it relates to courting the evangelical faith. I mean, we saw things like while he was in DC holding up the Bible for the picture, um, you know, nominating uh, a, a very devout Catholic to the Supreme court, things like that, as you kind of reported on this, you know, and I, I want to be, I want to be careful to ask this because, you know, I, you're, you're reporting on it. You're watching this from a third party objective sure. perspective, but what have you noticed in terms of, and, and this is kind of a touchy subject, but like the, the, the way in which both candidates have strategized, um, you know, trying to court the, the faith communities. Cause we've, like I said, we've seen people, things on both sides where uh, different things that they've done, different policies they've enacted, that kind of thing. Not saying they don't believe in those, but there's definitely some strategy involved. And especially right now when you're dominating a Catholic Supreme Court justice right before the election, you know, trying to solidify the the evangelical vote. So what is what has been your uh, assessment of that just from like the strategy standpoint of it all? Well, um, you know, as I mentioned, both have, you know, coalitions that are named, you know, evangelicals for Trump or you know, evangelicals for Biden. Um, but I think a lot of the strategy happens around the candidates rather than the candidate candidates themselves. Um, you know, one, one of sort of the stark contrasts that we've seen is, you know, Biden has gone to, to mass pretty much every Sunday and is often, often you know, photographed uh, leaving, leaving the church, not every Sunday during the pandemic, of course, but many Sundays recently as, as places have started to reopen, he's been photographed or uh, you know, documented as having, you know, leaving mass. And we haven't really seen that with, with President Trump. You know, he sort of has attended a few services here and there, um, but, and, you know, famously held the Bible up in the air. Um, but I think that's sort of a good metaphor for capturing their two different approaches is, you know, for, for, for Biden, this is very much a part of his everyday life. Um, you know, for President Trump, uh, just, just uh, this week, actually, um, in an interview with Religion News Service, he came out and said that he's no longer a member of the Presbyterian uh, denomination that he had been a member of in, in New York City, um, and now considers himself a non-denominational Christian, uh, which I think is sort of emblematic of, uh, you know, the the church writ large in terms of moving from you know specific de denominations to sort of a non-denominational approach. So, uh, but you know. For, for Trump, you know, he's been very explicit about his strategy about reaching evangel evangelical voters. Um, you know, he's he just kind of says what the strategy is. Uh, he almost talks about his campaign and evangelicals as if he's a pundit on cable, cable television. You know, so you have to get the evangelical vote, where for Biden, it's much more implicit in just the way that he thinks about the world and the way that he talks yeah. uh, about the world. I'm curious, as you talk to some some voters, particularly Christian voters, have you come across any who they're just completely torn on who to vote for, or maybe they're even contemplating not voting this year? Yeah, um, I, I think, you know, that's a tension sort of in every election, certainly back in 2016 uh, as well in 2012. Um, but, you know, I think for the most part, um, there's more of a willingness of Christians to say that they are voting for Biden than there ever has been the de the Democrat in the race than there ever has been in my lifetime in the past. Um, wow. You know, I think in 2008, Barack Obama sort of tore down some of the traditional Christian divides between the Republican and the Democratic Party in terms of attracting you know Christian voters. Um, but this year, it just seems even more so where Christians feel comfortable, the religious left feels comfortable in, you know, identifying themselves with Democrats in a way that's never really been possible or true yeah. uh, before in my lifetime. Yeah, because I, I mean, we're about, you know, we're, we're right before the election here, and I'm still, and I've, I've tossed around this 
this whole dilemma the whole year and I've prayed a lot about it. And I mean, this is the, this is the analogy that I have used a lot to, to defend people who maybe are struggling with voting. And this is ultimately, I've mentioned John Piper's article and he kind of lands at, he doesn't ever say who he's going to vote for, who he's not going to vote for, but um, you all, you read it and it almost reads like he's either not going to vote or he's going to vote for third party. And um, you know, not to put words in his mouth, that's just kind of reading between the lines and that, that sort of thing. Okay. But um, the, the analogy that I have used a lot, uh, and this is the best way that I could think of this is that, you know, for instance, my, my wife has some, some food allergies. There's certain foods that she cannot eat. And mm. when you go to a wedding reception, oftentimes the food is prepared for you. You don't have any say in what the food is. If she were to go to the wedding reception, not be able to eat something because she would have had an allergic reaction to it. In my opinion, you can't get mad at her for being hungry because she simply can't eat that food. Mm -hmm. To me, I feel like there are a lot of Christians who that's how they feel about this election, that, you know, they don't have any say in who's who who is uh, who's there for them to vote for. They don't have any say on what's on the quote unquote menu here. And so some are just going to abstain. And there's always that tension where it's people say, if you don't vote, you don't get to have an opinion. And I think more so than any other year, that does not ring true this year because you know we don't have any say really in who I mean we can vote in the primaries but like oftentimes you know we don't have in the larger sense a, a say in who the two nominees are granted you can vote third party that sort of stuff but um I don't know I'm just curious like in terms of people that aren't voting uh, have you have you met a lot of people who I, I kind of just talked about this but have you met a lot of people that have just said you know I'm not voting and this is why and it's because of their faith you know, I haven't. I haven't this year. Um, I've talked to voters in, in past elections, but um, the lines, the battle lines seem to be clearly drawn, so to speak, uh, this year. Um, I have not talked to a lot of voters, actually any voter at all, who said that they're that they're not voting, That's at least at the presidential level. Um, so that that is my sense. Uh, I'm sure those people exist, but um, yeah. I feel, in my sense, people feel more compelled to vote this year than ever before. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I know in a few people in my circles, you know, they've talked about not not voting. There's a guy that um, I follow. He's kind of a, an influential voice. He's uh, Billy Hollowell is his name. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he used to work for, I think it was called Blaze TV or something, but he's talked pretty openly about how he doesn't think he's going to vote this year. Um, and he's explained, you know, the reasons why. But yeah, I'm curious, you know, after the election to see, what percentage of evangelicals voted third party or Democrat this year compared yeah. to, you know, because I think you're right. I think a lot of the people that voted for Trump in 2016 are either going to shift to third party or to the, to the left. So it'll be interesting how much of that impacts the, the election. Um, yeah. But we'll see. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it and really sort of um, crass political terms, you know, 70,000 voters in Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin really sort of decided, you know, the, the 2016 election. And so, you know, 70,000 voters, I mean, th there are mega churches in America that, uh, you know, a couple of mega churches together makes up that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, think about one congregation at a mega church sort of deciding the presidential election. I mean, that's sort of, those are sort of the terms that we're, that we're talking about here. Yeah. Hey friends, just interrupting this conversation with Adam real quick to invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, The Journey. Each week I send out a weekly devotional or inspirational, motivational article along with a link to my podcast for that week and occasionally I'll even do some giveaways. So if you want to fill your inbox with some motivation and encouragement each week and potentially get some free coffee, some free books and other free stuff, head to the link in the show notes where you can sign up for my newsletter or you can visit my website, coleclaiborne.com. Click on the newsletter tab and you can sign up there. We're going to take a quick break and when we come back, Adam will answer some of your questions that you tweeted in for him to answer during this episode about this election and covering it. So be sure to stick around for that. Hi, my name is Tim Ferrara, founder of Discerning Dad. I would like to invite you to listen to my podcast, Everyday Discernment. My podcast helps Christians grow in discernment and make decisions that honor God. My goal is to help equip you with practical steps in order to make better decisions today by using the Bible as a roadmap to your life. I have guests on my podcast who share stories of a time they had godly discernment and a time they did not so we can learn and grow together. 
I've had some amazing guests on so far, like Sean Bowles, Matt Brown, Rashawn Copeland, and Jonathan Rumi, who plays Jesus on The Chosen. I have many more awesome guests planned, and I hope you listen to the Everyday Discernment podcast and that it helps you deepen your walk with Jesus Christ. You can find me, Discerning Dad, on all social media platforms by searching for Discerning Dad, and you can find the Everyday Discernment podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks, and God bless. This kind of goes into, uh, we'll get into some of the questions that people tweeted at us. And the first one comes from Joel C. Winicky. I hope I'm saying his name right. Uh, at JC underscore Winicky. He said, is voting a Christian in a secular elect, is voting as a Christian in a secular election, a series of trade-offs attempting to balance out and pick the most moral choice and what issues cannot be traded off because there is no countervailing issue that can equal its weight. Kind of a lot there. If you need me to read that again, I can. But essentially, yeah, yeah. is yeah. voting as a Christian in a secular election a series of trade-offs? Kind of what we're just talking about there. Sure. Um, you know, I think participating in an election as a citizen, regardless of faith, is a series of trade-offs. Um, for, for Christians, um, you know, there are a number of different lenses that you can apply, even as a Christian, that would lead you to, you know, different decisions at the ballot box. Um, you know, there is sort of, I think, two, two major philosophies um, among, uh, you know, evangelical Christians, I think, that motivate them. One is this idea that, um, that, that we are sort of to be salt and light in the world, to paraphrase uh, the New Testament, um, that we, you know, are, are here to sort of influence things in a way that, um, you know, brings about what, what Christians would call the kingdom of God, which uh, necessarily isn't, isn't just a, a literal kingdom of God, uh, but sort of the world um, as it was created um, the world that was as it was meant to be in terms of, um, you know, uh, kindness uh, to, to, to other people um, and, you know, loving our neighbor as ourselves. Um, and the, the, the philosophy that, uh, you know, Christians and, and religious liberty need to be protected at all costs. And so we need to engage in elections in order to elect people who will protect our ability to to continue to be Christians. And then I think that there's sort of a countervailing movement where, uh, you know, people uh, who are voters of faith um, are more interested in fostering what they might call the common good. Um, and so they're there for the good of sort of all, all people, whether or not they are also happen to be Christians. And so rather than just be being interested in their own interests or the interests of others who are like them, they're sort of interested in advancing the common good. So that sort of influences how they think about issues like immigration, for example, um, or, you know, same-sex marriage. Um, and so I think those are kind of two competing tensions uh, that Christians are working through right now. And of course, as it relates to the question, you know, in both of those camps, um, there may be, you know, trade-offs that are made. But, but I think that, um, you know, that really as Christians see it, there, there is really no sort of perfect, uh, a lot of Christians, this isn't true of all Christians, but a lot of Christians, particularly millennial Christians uh, or people who have grown up in the faith and are younger voters kind of see politics as, um, you know, a way to bring about change in the world that's good for sort of all people. And they see that as sort of loving them, their neighbors as themselves, even if they may disagree with, with their neighbors. This next one comes from Mary Helen at Mary Helen Ayers one. She says, as his fellow Hoosier, I'd be interested in what kind of political or cultural shifts, if any, he perceives inside the larger block of evangelical voters here. We kind of talked about that a little bit earlier, but. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, um, I, I would say that the, the evangelical block of voters as we know them today and as we knew them in 2016, isn't, isn't the same block of voters who will vote now, who are voting now. And uh, I think that will continue to change. I mean, I think, I think one of the things that I, I, I that that people, um, particularly even some reporters who cover politics, may not be conversant with, is the history of the ev evangelical tra tradition in, in United States politics, and how relatively new 
that is um, in the long, you know, uh, sweep of, of Christendom, um, you know, for example, issues like abortion uh, were not motivating uh, causes uh, to in presidential elections really prior to 19 to the 1970s, uh, when the moral majority sort of adopted that as an right. issue uh, after Roe v. Wade. Um, and so, you know, I think Christians uh, of the 1930s or 40s, or, you know, even the 1800s um, would be sort of confused about um what modern day politics look like when they look at elections um the way that that christians have sort of glommed on to particular types of uh, of of issues um as a result of political operatives using those things as as wedge issues um you, you know so i i do think that our modern iteration will probably look weird to some evangelicals looking looking on this election, yeah. say 30, 40 years in the future. Have you ever watched the documentary on Netflix? I think it's called The Family. Have you watched uh, it? I have not watched it, but I'm very familiar with, uh, okay. with it. Yeah. I, I started watching it. I never finished it, but for those who yeah. haven't seen it, it's basically talking about uh, faith in the White House. Christian, how, how po- politics in Washington, D.C. have... Uh, used slash benefited from slash welcomed uh faith into that world it's hard to explain because it's basically showing you like how kind of like what what we're talking about here basically how there's a kind of an influential group of christians that have operated in dc for years that um kind of are um lobbyists i guess i don't know they've they've had a lot of influence on uh, yeah various presidential regimes and and political uh elections that kind of thing yeah, this is the group behind uh, the National Prayer Breakfast um, right. that happens uh, every February in Washington, D.C. Um, but yeah, no, I'm very familiar with that. And, you know, another resource that I would recommend to listeners is uh, the book, uh, the National Book Prize uh, finalist or, or winner uh, called uh, The Evangelicals by Francis Fitzgerald. Um, it's really a historical look at the evangelical movement, particularly in America from the, the late 1800s until now. Um, and it's um, probably one of the top 10 books, uh, uh, nonfiction books I've ever read, wow, okay. um, just generally speaking. But from an academic historical point, it really looks at, you know, the rise of the of the evangelical right in a way that um you know, that I haven't seen before. And it sort of goes back to look at um, Billy Graham Sr.'s relationships with with presidents and how he's shaped their thinking and how he ultimately came to regret um, his involvement in, in American politics and was really concerned that by the end of his life, um, the evangelicals ha- became too wedded to the Republican Party right in a way that he, you know, said in his own words, really hurt the gospel. Um, so, you know, I think that's a really thoughtful uh, resource that um, if I could, if I could give one book to, um, you know, people that that would be among my first choices, just to, uh, you know, whether they're a person of faith or not, just to help understand how evangelicals have have shaped and been shaped by politics in America. I'll have to check that out. I haven't, I haven't ever heard that. Yeah, that, that Billy Graham, anecdote you were just sharing that it's the one I was trying to think of earlier I couldn't remember the exact language he used but he basically he was trying to caution people from being too married sure. to the political right and sure. you, see, you see the the results of that now sure uh, the next you know, question it's hard, not to, it's hard not to come away um from that book thinking that he would be sort of you know disappointed in his son uh Franklin Graham and the, and the way that he is sort of furthered the ball down the field in that in that respect yeah he he was he was the i guess he was one of the organizers of the large prayer gathering that happened in dc like a month ago and tons of people there no masks no distancing and uh quite a few cases i actually from some pretty influential christian pastors came out of that event too so uh, next question comes from Carrie Gaffney. She says, "In what ways has religion slash faith made him question or affirm where he has li- where he lives slash reports on people as they vote in the Hoosier state?" Well, that's that's an interesting question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, could you could you say that one more time? Yeah, she said, "In what ways has religion slash faith made him question or affirm where he lives, reports or reports on people 
as they vote in the Hoosier state? I don't know that it's made me question living in the Hoosier state. Um, I, I think sort of the, I, 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 I think sort of the comment embedded in the question is, um, you know, in what ways does your understanding of faith come into tension with, you know, being uh, a reporter in, you know, Barn Red, Indiana, yeah. uh, deeply Republican stronghold, um, just to sort of dissect the question. But I would say it's given me a deep empathy uh, for understanding voters uh, in, in Indiana. It's, you know, really helped me to kind of understand and embody their thought process. You know, I grew up in, just across the border, uh, not too far away uh, from, from, from Fort Wayne in a small town in Northwestern Ohio. Um, and, you know, sort of grew, grew up in church world, attended an evangelical private university here in Indiana. Did you go to um, Taylor? No, I went to Indiana Wesleyan University. Okay. okay. Somebody, yeah. somebody asked a question. Uh, I guess it's insinuated that you went to Taylor. So that's why I wondered. I, I almost went to Taylor. I visited Indiana Wesleyan as well. So yeah, Indiana Wesleyan University. I, I had a soccer scholarship there and okay. they, they had the better soccer team of the two. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, if, if someone went to Taylor, I, I apologize for, for your. <laughs> Yeah, that was the, I was, I was going to play tennis at Taylor and then it just no, it was yeah. too expensive. So that's why I didn't. Yeah. No, Taylor, Taylor is a good school. Um, but no, I went to Indiana Wesleyan and then I went to Northwestern um, for, uh, for a graduate school in journalism. So I would just say that, you know, my faith living in Indiana has been, um, you know, something that has helped me uh, understand voters and uh, kind of see the Trump movement um, before, before many of my, colleagues, you know, sort of on the national level saw, saw its resonance here. Um, so I would say it's my, my faith is um, not necessarily put me in tension with, with, with this, with yeah. uh, this that I live in. This question is kind of interesting. This is from Joel Thorpe. Um, he asked, I don't know where Adam attends services, but how would he describe his church's approach to current events, public policy and issues of common concern between church and state? What are his feelings about that posture? Have you ever discussed topics like this with church leadership and how did it go? Yeah, that's a really insightful question. I, I think I saw that on Twitter when it came through. Yeah. Um, I, I would say that, um, you know, couched in the language that, you know, I, I am a, a journalist um, who also happens to be a, a person of faith uh, and vice versa, I'm, I'm a person of faith who also happens to be a journalist. Um, you know, in my experience, um, I have struggled um, to find uh, kind of a, a church home um, in recent years. Um, you know, uh, as as the the father of a, a young, you know, twenty two month old daughter, um, you know, it's it's to be quite frank with you, it's it's difficult in um, certain evangelical subcircles to find a church um, in Hamilton County, in Indiana where my daughter could one day grow up to, you know, deliver a sermon um, from the pulpit um, because of uh, the church's teachings around women participating in, in ministry. And so, um, you know, that's, that's a really difficult thing um, to, to sit in a church service and have my daughter sort of be seen as, if not less than, you know, you know different from the person who is speaking um, and, and never sort of be able to obtain that. So I think that sort of has, has made it difficult to find a church home. Um, and, you know, I have, I have had conversations with leadership and different churches, um, you know, around that issue and, and other issues that, um, you know, you know, um, growing up, you know, prior to my time in journalism, I've always sort of felt homeless, uh, not only as a, as a journalist, um, but as a person of faith and, you know, kind of a, a denomination that fully uh, sort of embraces probably the way that I approach the world. And I've also felt homeless um, in, uh, in, in political parties. Um, and so I think both of those attributes make me kind of a better, a better journalist, um, just sort of a, a resistance to sort of clinging to either one dominant denomination or one, um, political party. I think it's made me a more thoughtful journalist who's able to talk to both Democrats and Republicans alike, um, people of faith and, and not of faith. So, right. 
And hope Joel, that answers the question. Yeah. And Joel also asked another good question. See, he's the one that thought you went to Taylor. So we'll substitute Taylor for Indiana Wesleyan here, but um, he's asking, I guess uh, he said, what's, what's his best percentage guess on his graduating class at Indiana Wesleyan um, how they voted in 2016 versus how he how they'll vote in 2020. So it's worded uh, best percentage guess on how Adams graduating class at Indiana Wesleyan voted slash will vote in 2016 and 2020 presidential elections. What about the parents of his graduating class um, and maybe even this year's graduating class? So kind of I guess looking sure. at trends of you know your contemporaries sure. and how they voted then versus now and then what the current college students would vote for. Sure. So to date myself, I graduated in 2007. Um, I would guess that most um, most of my graduating class probably um, I would say 70 to 80 percent likely voted for the Republican or Libertarian candidate in 2016. Um, and I would say this year's graduating class, I, I would guess, you know, maybe 55 to 60 percent will vote for for the Republican candidate. Um, and the, the remaining percentage would be sort of allocated among either a third party candidate or write in candidate or the Democratic candidate. So predominantly, um, you know, Republican. Um, for a long time, um, Indiana Wesleyan University only had a college Republicans group, but I was, uh, I was editor in chief of my newspaper. And during my time um, at Indiana, uh, college Democrats started uh, at Indiana Wesleyan University, and that was just super controversial. Wow, yeah. uh, campus happening to cover as the editor in chief of my newspaper. Um, you know, there, there was uh, protests, you know, that uh, college Democrats shouldn't hypothetically exist at a Christian university. Um, so that has certainly changed uh, in the time since I've, I've left. This is uh, one that I just, I just thought of as you mentioned this, because it, it hit me last night, you know, we were, my wife and I were out to dinner and we walked out to the car and we saw, a, we saw a bumper sticker that it was a cartoon of Donald Trump peeing on the word liberals and like we see that kind of stuff all over the place you know like yep. indiana fans peeing on purdue fans, all that kind of stuff but sure. it just hit me about and i told my wife i said so many people just don't understand the word like they, they talk about liberals as if it's like there's some kind of a freak show that you would have seen like in the circus back in barnum and bailey's days it's like they just like people use these terms like they're just crazy and i guess have you seen that to where like and it's i guess it's true on both sides but just the where people don't really understand what it is that they're saying about people. Like they, they hear the word liberal and they don't quite really understand what that means, but they throw yeah. it out there as if it's a pejorative. Yeah. You know, one of the things, and, and, and this is not a partisan comment, but one of the things that I think that Christians um, forget as they approach politics um, is that, you know, we, uh, the people who we, who we, uh, elect to lead uh, shape us. Um, they shape kind of our approach to life, um, and it's difficult in a in a, in a fair-minded reading of the New Testament um, to see that sort of tribalism, um, where uh, you know someone would would urinate on someone who disagrees with them. It's different. It's difficult to find that ethic um, in the Bible, and not assuming that this person was a person of faith or a Christian. Um, but there does seem to be that sentiment in the evangelical church where, you know, there's a, there's an actual culture war happening. And, um, you know, I, I, I do think Christians in some cases are using non-Christian means to sort of advance their, their beliefs, um, in, in the world in a way that would be, uh, sort of antithetical to a, a lot of the way that I read the Bible. I agree. I think that's a perfect way to put it. Last thing here too, we uh, got quite a few questions about your thoughts on the proper tenderloin to bun ratio. I guess you fancied yourself as a as a tenderloin expert. I guess you you got that the, yeah. the picture somebody created for you that's now your Twitter avatar. You're holding the tenderloin. So I guess sure. first off, where did your uh, love for a tenderloin sandwich come from? And then uh, what is the the proper bun to meat well, ratio? <laughs> well. You know, growing up in Ohio, um, you know, tenderloins were always part of our, uh, the milieu in Ohio. Um, and, you know, when I'd go to the county fair every July, you know, I'd, I'd be sure to get a tenderloin. Um, and I like my tenderloin, like wafer, wafer thin, um, really, re really thin. Um, and I like it to exceed the bun by, you know, you know, at least two to three times the size of the bun. 
Um, I, you know, I'm not dogmatic in terms of the exact ratio. <laughs> Other people are. Um, but when I came to Indiana, I was shocked to find that Indiana fancies itself as sort of the 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 um, mecca of of the tenderloin of the fried pork tenderloin. And you know, I'm doing some research right now uh, about the the origin stories of the of the tenderloin. It's it's been said to have been invented in Indiana, but I don't buy it. I think it's a Midwestern meal. I mean, if you look at Iowa, for example, or, or, or Ohio, they're some of the largest pork producing states in, in the country. And so it's sort of bizarre, I think, that Indiana thinks that the tenderloin happened here. Um, you know, I think Midwestern states are so, um, they have such an inferiority complex when yeah. it comes to how they see themselves. And I, and I think there are things like that, that states like Ohio or Indiana or Iowa cling to because it's like the one or, you know, one of a few things that gives them some sort of way to stand out uh, among a bunch of states that are sort of just, you know, all similar in a lot of different ways. Um, so yeah, I, I like a really, um, oftentimes in Indiana, the, the tender, the fried pork tenderloin is a little bit too thick for my liking. I like a really thin, patty um and i like it to be super crispy with a a, a very sm a small bun and a large cut of meat if you ever get the chance the first week of october assuming we can have it next year but evansville where i'm from always has it's called the fall festival and it's one of the largest see talk about inferior, inferiority complexes i don't know if this is true but evansville has always claimed that behind mardi gras Evansville's Fall Festival is the largest street festival in the United States. I have no idea if that's accurate, but that is okay. what we—that's what we're always told. It is a—it is a very large street festival. Nothing sure. but fried food and rides, and sure. uh, basically, it's a bunch of booths from organizations, churches, that sure. kind of thing. And several of the booths there make a really, really good fried tenderloin, and that's you good can get to know. them for like I, I, two or three dollars. So, I was actually scheduled to give a talk uh, in Evansville uh, this month uh, back in the spring um, related to the election. Um, but obviously that's been canceled uh, because of the coronavirus. But I do, I've, uh, Evansville um, is, a, is a town where I just don't feel like I've spent a, a, as much time as I would like to. And I hear great things about it and I'd love to spend more time there. So I'll have to do that. I love a good street festival too. Yeah. Um, my, my hometown in Ohio, Balfountain, Ohio, um, it, it claims that they are home to the world's uh, first paved street and um, <laughs> the world's shortest paved street. Um, so I don't know that that's, I don't know how that's possible. Um, and, but I sort of joke about how my entire life um, has, has been a search for longer streets. Um, so um, it's a good yeah. Metaphor. Yeah. The last question I always ask my guest, uh, the, the show is called In No Hurry. And so I always like to talk to people about, you know, what we're talking about here. You're a very busy guy. Heck, we, we tried three different days to get this podcast going. So sure. you're you're a really busy guy right now. And so um, the, I always like to talk to people about when their life does get busy, um, it's crazy. What do you kind of do? You mentioned you got a daughter, but what do, what do you do to kind of slow down and just sort of uh, relax and recenter your focus a little bit? Hmm, that's uh, that's interesting. Um, that's an interesting question. I, I do, uh, I would say, I do a couple um, a couple different things. Um, I always, uh, I'm, a, I'm a runner. I've uh, run seven marathons and I think like thirteen wow. half marathons. So um, running running is always something that helps me to kind of um, recenter. Um, and um, I would say, sort of um, at the end of the day. Um, you know, before I kind of lay down for the night, one, one of the things, one of the practices that I try to do is called the, the prayer, the prayer of the examine, um, which is sort of a, uh, you know, a multi-step uh, sort of reflection uh, prayer, kind of like looking back through your day. Um, and so that's something that I try to do as well. Awesome. Well, uh, Adam, where can people connect with you? Know, you're, you're pretty active on Twitter. You've got a newsletter that you that people can subscribe to. I guess what's the best way for people to contact you and, and be in touch with you and, and check out your work? Yeah, um, I'm at Adam Wren on Twitter. So A-D-A-M-W-R-E-N, like the bird. Um, and they can find most of my work for different outlets at importantville.com. Uh, so the word important and then ville, like Evansville.com. Um, 
Well, Adam, thanks so much for, for joining me and shedding some light on this election and best of luck to you as you continue to cover it and the, you know politics in general it never stops but definitely as this election kind of closes to an end and uh appreciated obviously your your work covering the hoosier state I'm, i don't live there anymore i live in kentucky but uh i still yeah. i still consider indiana my home so thanks again for joining me and uh we'll talk again soon awesome pleasure good luck Well, I hope that conversation with Adam was beneficial and enlightening to you. I especially appreciate what he had to say toward the end about tribalism and the culture war that is happening among evangelicals, because I think that is something that we seriously need to address, especially as this election approaches and the inevitable fallout comes from it. I just hope that we don't see the division that I fear we might see. And so I think as Christians, we need to address that with our peers, with our churches, with those that we don't even know all that well that might be causing or contributing to that strife and that division. But as somebody who used to work in journalism and got to cover some of the 2016 election, I really enjoyed hearing from Adam and just hearing how faith has been such a big part of this election and hearing a journalist's perspective on that. So I hope you guys found that fascinating as well. Definitely check him out on Twitter. Let him know that you enjoyed hearing him on this show and appreciate him answering some questions from some listeners and some of the people that maybe they're tuning in for the first time to the show. If that's you, thank you. Hope you stick around for future episodes or go back and listen to some previous episodes. Once again, just a reminder to subscribe to my newsletter if you haven't already, if that interests you. I would love for you to be a part of that. That's also a good way to keep up to date with some work that I do and some places that I write. I'll often link those on there as well. So I'd love for you to be a part of that. But you can also follow me on social media. I am at Cole Claiborne on Twitter and on Instagram and Cole Douglas Claiborne on Facebook. You can also email me, cole at coleclayborn.com or coleclayborn at gmail.com, whichever is easiest for you. I would love to get in touch with you and hear what you've enjoyed or suggestions about the show, whatever it is. Just would love to hear from you. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Hope you guys have a great week. Hope you guys find some time to relax and not be in a hurry. And we'll see you next week.